I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Today, we are bringing you a special episode of the Fox True Crime Podcast. This morning, an arrest was made in connection with the infamous Gilgo Beach murders, also known as the Long Island Serial Killer. This afternoon, authorities will hold a press conference in which they will announce developments made in this Long Island homicide investigation. Joining me with more on this breaking news is my friend, attorney and retired NYPD inspector, Paul Morrow. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on this explosive day. You had direct insight and participation in this infamous case. What can you tell us today? So I don't want to overstate my involvement. I will tell you this. There were um, some indications that the perpetrator, whoever he was, might have had some sort of a footprint here in New York City. Um, One of the victims, Shannon Gilbert, uh, resided in the Bronx um, when she went missing. So there was that. Um, but because these, uh, a lot of the victims were sex workers, it was very hard to pin down. So running the intelligence bureau operations, we had liaisons, uh, upstate on Long Island, et cetera. And we tweaked to the fact that the perpetrator was making phone calls to the family of Shannon Gilbert to taunt them after having done what he did. So based on that information, we did what we could to try to maybe intercept him because he appeared to be doing what he was doing from Midtown, in and around Midtown. And our theory, and this is, I don't know if this is gonna turn out to be true or not, but our theory at the time was that he might be somebody who commutes on the Long Island Railroad because the phone calls appeared to be coming in and around the area of Penn Station. And so our theory at the time, now I, let me, again, full disclosure, I was not, uh, we were not working homicide. We were working the Intelligence Bureau, which at the time was 99% counterterrorism. But we had a lot of the most advanced technical tools. And I, as I said, we had the liaisons in the outer areas. And so in, we got involved just in a tangential way, but we began to put together the fact that, wow, Maybe this guy's going back and forth from Midtown Manhattan on the Long Island Railroad. So we tried to locate him on the date and time. So he was doing it at certain days and at certain times. And so we had guys out there who were hoping to interdict him somehow and to pick up the fact that he was doing it at the same time. My guys were in contact with the family. And a short version is that the call stopped. And... um as a result, you know, we, we never got him. So I don't know if this suspect, who apparently is going to be arraigned later today, um, my understanding is we're cleared to say his name, um, Rex Hureman. I don't know if it's going to turn out that he was, in fact, commuting on the Long Island Railroad, but it does look like he was a member of an architecture firm here in the city. And so that would track to what we believed at the time. Was it your understanding that the call stopped because he got wise to the fact that potentially the heat was on him, or did they stop naturally? I think the former. Um, from what I recall, and you know, we, you know, uh, we're taxing my memory a bit, this is going back 10, 11 years, but um, my understanding uh, was that there was some publicity up in Buffalo where the family was from, Shannon Gilbert's family, and subsequent to that, after that publicity, 
the phone call stopped. So I don't know that this Rex person stopped because he heard about that, um, but the two did seem kind of to be linked. And, you know, who had the case was Suffolk County, and we never wanted to do, we were in contact with them, again, through this liaison unit, so we never wanted to do anything that could in any way impinge on what they were doing. We used to just offer them our help. Um, we would say, look, anything you need, you know, I had a very advanced phone unit at the time. The phone stuff was very new. A lot of the stuff that is done now relatively routinely that we've seen, let's say, in the Murdoch case or in the Brian Koberger case out in Idaho, a lot of that stuff was not really common practice at the time. It was new. We were really, I have to just, you know, pat myself in the back a little bit. I had very good people. It wasn't me. It was my people. Um, they were really good. And uh, they had liaised with all of the phone companies. They had been out talking to uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft, all the people in Silicon Valley. And so we really had the, um, the techniques down. And um, at the time, you know, we were really trying to be very forward leaning to say, look, if we can help in any way, please let us know. Um, ultimately, it didn't come to pass. Um, Suffolk County seemed to have their arms around it and they had a phone unit as well. And I don't know what they were capable of doing. Maybe they were doing the same stuff. But um, ultimately, it looked like they it washed out and the case went very cold. And I'm going to be really honest, uh, you know, just for full disclosure, I didn't think it was ever going to come down. I, I really thought that this is one of those ones that's going to be unsolved forever. And so more power to them. They stuck with it. Um, their chief of police, Rodney Harrison, full disclosure, I knew Rodney a little bit. We studied for captain together. We were in the same class. Um, he uh, went out to Suffolk, and one of the first things he did was announce that I'm putting together a task force, and we're going to go at this thing hard. And again, full disclosure, I kind of said to myself, well, good for you, Rodney, but um, I wouldn't hold my breath. And God bless him. He got it done, man. So, uh, you know, kudos to him and kudos to his team. Right. I, I can feel the energy, frankly, in this building um, and around town right now. It's one of triumph yeah. that the, that from, you know, from all that we know, like I just got a chill from all that we know uh, for once. The good guys have triumphed. There is some type of closure for these poor families. For those that aren't familiar with the Long Island serial killer lore, Paul, can you do a brief refresher on the events of those murders? Sure. So Shannon Gilbert, which is the name that I've been invoking, um, she uh, the way this sort of uh, begins is that she is down in this Gilgo Beach area, which is a spit of land on the south shore of Long Island. It's very remote. Okay. Um, there aren't even too many houses there, and I think they can't even build anymore. And the terrain is what's known as um, scrub, uh, scrub pine, and it's really dense, dry, but it's very dense. And it's like these pine trees and this undergrowth. So what happens is she's a sex worker. And there, she's working off of, at the time, it's either Craigslist or a thing called Backpage, which is since defunct because there was a civil suit. Um, against them for uh, human trafficking. And consequently, uh, Backpage went out of business. So she's there. Something occurs that has her call 911. And in the 911 call, she's fleeing from a house. And there's some background noise and background chatter. And then she subsequently goes missing. Suffolk County catches the case and they investigate. They go into the area looking for her in this very dense area. They got the dogs out there and everything else. They don't find her, but what they find is a different body. That's not her. And they really start looking at it. Now that area is so dense 
that they actually got uh, a cherry picker, like a fire department ladder, to go out over the area to look because it's almost impenetrable. And ultimately what they did, from what I understand, is they got the rookies out of the academy because rookies would do anything you tell them. <laughs> and they told them, get out there and hack your way through the brush and find out what you can do. And they subsequently find four bodies, all of which have the same signature. They're wrapped in burlap. And those are the four bodies that I think will almost certainly go to this Rex Hureman, mm -hmm. if he is indeed the perp. Again, he's innocent until proven guilty. But right now, he does seem to be the suspect, and he is arrested. My understanding is there's going to be arraignment today, later in the day, out in Riverhead, which is where the county court is. And I think that those four are the bodies that certainly have the commonality of the signature. You know, serial killers have a signature. His, those bodies definitely have the same signature. What happens subsequent, however, is that in expanding the search along this spit of dense land, um, and which has a beach, by the way, um, they find these other bodies. And the question becomes, are all of them from this guy, even though they don't all have the same signature, or is it just that this is a remote area where people can dump bodies? Some of those bodies look to have been there a very long time. Um, and some of them don't track to what you would think is this serial killer's signature. Um, my understanding is there's a male transsexual, there's an infant, oh. and there's even some speculation that bodies found as far away as Atlantic City could go to the same quote-unquote Gilgo Beach killer. And so everybody had a lot of theories. Everybody who was involved or was watching this that said, well, these four bodies were the same guy, but these others aren't. No, no, no. These six bodies have the same signature. No, no. They all have the same signature. So it's going to be very interesting to see what exactly they're charging because while we are spe all speculated, and like I said, I had a tangential involvement in the case that was important to us and we wanted to help, but Suffolk County PD is who had this case. They're the ones who are the experts in it. They ran with it all along. There was a lot of second guessing of them. The FBI was involved. There was maybe some second guessing going on between Suffolk and the FBI. The chief of police of Suffolk, a guy named Burke, ultimately got arrested for something unrelated federally. He went to jail. There was some speculation that he was involved in trying to cover it up. That was all nonsense. Suffolk stayed on course, kept going on it. As I said, uh, Chief Harrison got out there. He put this task force together, and they were able to slam dunk it. My understanding, the rumor is, and it was just a rumor around town, that um, there was a grand jury impaneled as uh, far back as a month ago. So the reporting now is that they found a new body earlier this week. And so a lot of uh, the speculation is that, oh, the new body was the break in the case. That doesn't really make sense if there was a grand jury last month. So we're going to have to wait to see what they say at this press conference, and I'm sure we're going to learn a lot more. I can't help, Paul, but think about some commonalities uh, between this situation and the Spokane serial killer sex workers being the victims, and also an evolving MO. And I'd love to get your thoughts and insight into that. So notwithstanding what you just said, if, if a serial killer has an MO, the reality, however, is that that might evolve or you know, his or her skills might evolve. Different circumstances, different victims might dictate the manner of death or the manner of gratification, et cetera. So we've seen, and particularly illustrated with the Spokane serial killer, bodies that 
on its face didn't appear to be by the same killer, but mm-hmm. eventually was determined, yes, that spanned many decades and many years. And what they represented was simply that serial killer's evolution. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, if you look at the history of serial killers in general, and if you really drill down, um, their, their uh, predilections do evolve. They get bored, mm-hmm. you know, like anybody else. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that that does happen. They start sort of stretching where they'll go and what they'll do. The other thing, though, that makes such a um, makes it so sort of amorphous in trying to ascertain is that once they're caught, they brag and they make stuff up. And they claim more victims than they actually had. It's almost like bragging rights in jail. No, I'm the biggest serial killer of all time. No, I'm the biggest serial killer of all time. And so what you end up with sometimes is serial killers who are locked up and sort of the only currency they have that they can work is the number of victims that they had. And so they start claiming all sorts of different victims. There's a case in the media recently, um, they call the guy the Times Square killer. And he originally did his killings back in the 70s. Um, Similar thing, prostitutes. But then as time went on, his MO began to evolve. Well, he's in jail now for life, but he's claimed a lot more bodies than they can actually track to him. And it goes very much to what you're saying. As time went on, he began to expand his areas of operations. It wasn't just Times Square. He started doing stuff in New Jersey where he lived. And he was very much like what this guy uh, Rex Uriman appears to be, which is sort of a normal everyday citizen that goes to work, et cetera. This guy was a little bit of a loner, um, even though he was married. And I believe he was married. But in any case, it goes very much to what you're saying. He, he began to expand his area of operation. He began to uh, expand the type that he would target. But then once caught, he started claiming all kinds of other stuff. And really, my recollection is they can only pin one more body to him. And so all these other bodies that he's claiming, they don't think are his. So it makes this stuff very difficult. And what it really goes down to is human, the human psyche is so complex. And the things that drive people like this are just as complex as anybody's predilections are relative to food you like. You know, think about stuff that you used to eat all the time that now you don't really care for. Things evolve. People's tastes change. And it's the same thing, unfortunately, with people like this. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. It's so fascinating as well. You know, you mentioned the word currency. And when perps like this are are charged, oftentimes as well, their only leverage is that currency. So we might expect, you know, when death penalty and capital punishment are on the table or certain charges where... Um, The offer is I can identify, I can lead you to more bodies, I can help identify and close these cases if you take capital punishment off the table, Mm -hmm. if there is some, say, a federal charge, et cetera. So that's something to watch out for here. Um, Paul, as well, given the the victims were sex workers, can you speak to the social climate or the way, if, if at all, the news coverage was affected, how the community cared about the Long Island serial killer and their victims? Was there any type of effect that that had on the public's knowledge of it and the community um, passion about it. Yeah, this is an old story. So, you know, serial killers tend to target sex workers. Now, you know, you can go into the psychology of that, but if nothing else, it goes to the fact that unfortunately they're considered, for lack of a better term, this is going to sound very pejorative, but to a serial killer, sex workers are disposable. Mm -hmm. 
They consider them to be people that are on the edges of society, that they don't really have stable family lives, that nobody's going to look for them, essentially, right? There was another Long Island serial killer, a guy named Joel Rifkin, um, who did a similar thing. Um, he was killing prostitutes. And it's an old, old story. I mean, you know, the, the, the killing of prostitutes is, a, is ubiquitous across the sort of serial killer landscape. So, you know, there is an undeniable effect that whether, you know, people want to admit it or not, they say to themselves, well, you know what, this is a person who was living on the edge of society. Maybe it was a drug deal gone bad. Um, this is somebody that, you know, we, now law enforcement doesn't do this, but I, I think that there is some time, as you're alluding to, a little bit of a discounting of the import of the fact that this was a human being who didn't deserve to be murdered. And um, this is one of those areas that law enforcement doesn't get a lot of credit. Um, I, I'm going to tell you, I had one direct, direct encounter with a serial killer victim. Um, this is going back now, and it's taxing my memory. It's about 25 years ago. She was posed as if she was crucified, and she was on her back in an abandoned building. And it was weird. Because, you know, at the time, we didn't know there was a serial killer that was operating. Um, and it was in, uh, she was on her back. And, you know, it was just one of those things where just looking at it, you could tell this is not a normal murder because she was posed. And at the time, I was, I was like a rookie. I was driving a sergeant and the detectives showed up and he said something like, yeah, it's him. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, and he said, like, this is like the fifth one. And at the time the precincts weren't, didn't talk to each other as, as uniformly as they do now. They were not as well linked. Um, but he said, yeah, we're discovering that this is going to be the fourth or fifth one. Um, you know, he's, he's an active serial killer. And I, I lost the thread after that. I never know what happened with it. But I can tell you that the law enforcement, the detective was, that was there was burning to catch this guy. You know what I mean? So to speak up for law enforcement here a little bit, they don't take these things lightly. That's considered to be, in a lot of ways, kind of the grand slam of cases if you can take down a serial killer. So it's actually the reverse. Um, so law enforcement tends to really stay on these things, but they're very tough cases because they're not driven by the profit motive. They're very random. They're very hard to reverse engineer because they're really random. And sometimes the victims are different areas of the country, different areas of the state, different areas of the city, six months apart, two years apart, three years apart. It's very hard to connect them. You need a real signature. And the thing that I'm talking about, it was the way she was posed, you know. Um, and in this case, you know, it was this Gilgo Beach area. As well, part of the reason that serial killers are able to be serial is that they fly under the radar. You mentioned earlier, sort of um, and alluded to that in terms of this suspect, Rex Yorman, and working at an architecture firm in Midtown, escaping detection for so many years, oftentimes because of their, quote, normalcy. Mm. Because they don't have perhaps something about them physically or in a personality way that makes you remember them. Mm. They're actually quite benign. Yeah. They're actually quite 
not memorable. Yeah. So that aids them. Those that are the the ones that, oh my gosh, he was frightening looking. I saw him right away. You know, th- those are the ones that don't last too long right. in terms of uh, escaping detection. So with that entree, Paul, what are your final thoughts and questions you may have, things that the audience should be looking for as we proceed further uh, with Rex Yearman being arrested for this arraignment coming up? What things do you expect them to find in his home, for example, right, anything right. like that about him as a human? So, it's very common for serial killers to keep a souvenir. That's one of the things they do. You know, killing is how they talk to the world. And it fulfills some need for their identity and some compulsion. So part of that compulsion is generally somehow or other to memorialize what they did. That's why they do things like calling the victim's family and taunting them. Or like Zodiac, writing to the newspapers and putting codes. They want the attention. This is how they get gratification. It's part of the entire identity that they're looking for. And you're exactly right. The ones that fly under the radar, and it's more common that they are, as the old saying goes, the banality of evil, right? It's more common that they just look like everyday characters. Look at a guy like Ted Bundy, right? I mean, he was like a normal, good-looking guy, actually. You know, he had a, apparently a, um, a pretty charming manner, and he used that to gain entry into the lives of some of the people that, uh, you know, the women that he killed. This guy, Joel Rifkin, was just a normal schlub who nobody would think of as a, a serial killer. And you're right, it's just some hidden vacancy in their personalities and their psyches that they need to fill. And it's not something that's generally apparent to their neighbors, to their friends, to their relatives, almost uniformly when these things get taken down. When you talk to people, people say, I can't believe it. This guy, you never get, I'm not surprised, he looks like a serial killer. You never get that. And it's just because it's some hidden vacuum in some aspect of their psyche, their, their, their souls that they're looking to plug up and I am just really, really grateful that they got him. Um, again, kudos to Suffolk PD for staying with a really cold case. And we're going to find out how many of these victims they're actually going to be able to link up with this guy. Because you got to know, they're tearing his house apart. That's what they were doing today. They're looking for those souvenirs. They're looking for any evidence that he took anything. And he, they're probably going to dig up his backyard. You know, does he have clothing that he buried back there? They're going to be going through everything. I can tell you that they almost certainly have gone through his garbage already. If they've been on him, they've probably been pulling his garbage and seeing if there's... uh, They probably at some point took DNA. If I had a guess, they took DNA from... And this could have been the break. You know, it's going on now, the the, uh, press conference. So, you know, I don't want to make a prediction. It's going to totally be wrong. But um, knowing what I know, I have to feel like there's a good chance it was DNA. And maybe they did what happened in Idaho. Mm-hmm. which is they took some DNA from one of the victims and they pinged it through one of these commercial databases, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and they might have hit him or a relative and that gave them a pointer and they followed their noses to to this guy. I don't know that pure supposition. I'm sure we'll get more facts. That's right. Paul Morrow, you are such an incredible wealth of information, especially today as the Long Island serial killer Unsolved cold case has now, it appears, been finally solved. Listeners, for more on forensic genealogy and the DNA identification that Paul was just referencing, go back to my bonus episode with CeCe Moore, who is the forensic genealogist that has helped crack so many of these cases. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. 
Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. 